Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Sarit Packer and Itamar Srulovich, the husband and wife team behind London's Honey & Co. restaurant, traveled around the Levant to learn about Middle Eastern grilling from charred watermelon to smoked vegetables to rows of kebabs. Today they share their stories and recipes from their travels and tell us that no matter where they went, they were always welcomed in the kitchen. I can't tell you of one occasion that we were met with anything but complete and utter hospitality, generosity, friendliness. When you were curious about someone's food, they don't hold back. They want to share. You know, they feel respected and and. They give you so much, and I think it's it's a really kind of life-affirming experience. Also coming up, we make Sarita Nitamar's recipe for cherry pistachio cake, and Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett reveal some of their favorite culinary sayings. But first, it's my interview with pizza consultant Anthony Falco. From Mexico to India, Anthony has taught people around the world to make great pizza. His new book, Pizza Czar, brings these lessons to the home kitchen. Anthony, welcome to Milk Street. Hi, thanks for having me. So for someone who's a pizza consultant in your early days, your great-grandmother, who was Sicilian, made great pizza, and you used to shout at her, I want Pizza Hut. So how did that work out? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like the Pizza Hut pan pizza, you know, I, I think it really did used to be better, and... I mean, I think it's very enticing, you know, between like the advertising that's connected to cartoons and movies and just the general overload of salt and fat and sugar that comes with these kind of things. There was never any mozzarella on my great grandmother's pizza. So it was really just kind of vegetables and sauce and and onions and breadcrumbs. And so, you know, now I think back on it and I I really wish I could eat that and I, I... don't eat Pizza Hut pan pizza anymore. Your quote is, you can spend a lifetime to manage a fire and operate an oven. For those of us who've never operated a wood-fired pizza oven, what's to know? What's hard about it? I mean, it's it's very cool. I mean, it's there's no moving parts. You know, it's just a dome. And what's happening is when you're cooking the pizza, you're able to use, like, all the forms of heat that you need to cook a pizza. Um you place the pizza directly on the floor so you get the conduction from the hot floor and then there's the swirling hot air that's trying to escape the oven and that's the convection and then there's the radiant heat that's coming off of the open flame and I would always when I was describing how to cook the pizza to new people I would say you want to paint color onto the crust with the flame Mm. and so you rotate it and then move it towards the flame rotate it move it towards the flame and then you pull it out of the oven and I mean it's, it's a thing of beauty, you know. So you've consulted in Thailand, Tokyo, Portland, et cetera, and local ingredients 
are different, the flour, for example. Um, so in, in Mexico, you end up using casilla, right, the sort of Mexican version of mozzarella. Well, actually, I, I made mozzarella when I was in Mexico City. We were able to get 30 liters of fresh raw milk from Puebla. And, uh, I mean, it was beautiful, and we turned it into fresh mozzarella. Mm-hmm. And we used flour from Mexico. Um, Tamaulipas uh, has the oldest olive groves in the New World. Mexican sea salt from Ensenada was fantastic. Um, I mean, Mexico is, I think one of the most important culinary countries in the world and and it's one of the few places when you're when you're making pizza that if you want to source everything from there you could and I did and it was great so i think the best part of when i travel is is that i i get to hang out with restaurant owners and chefs and we explore the local food and i try to have a conversation with what's happening locally through pizza um flowers I mean, the choice most people are looking at are, should I use all-purpose or bread flour? So bread flour is, is usually the best? Uh, I, I like blending those two, actually. Hmm. You kind of get a little best of the both worlds. You get some chew and strength from the bread flour, and then you can get some tenderness and crispiness from the, the all-purpose. My recommendation for home cooks who are using this book is try to get Something uh, local, if you can. Um, there's a really a, you know, a revolution right now in in local milling happening, and just play around. I mean, you could make pizza with any flour, really. I think as long as they're good quality flour, like never bleached and never bromated, is the main, the most important thing. So let's talk about temperature of dough. Uh, I've played around with pizza a lot, and I found it's critical the dough gets up to like 75 degrees. Like if it's a cool kitchen and the dough's in the 60s, it just never relaxes properly. You don't get a good rise in the oven. Is that really critical or not? Well, I'd say time and temperature are are just as important as salt and yeast, that you have to think of time and temperature as ingredients. I mean, you know, that's kind of the hard thing about writing a, a pizza cookbook that encourages people to use sourdough starters is that there's so many variables of, you know, the temperature of the water, the temperature of the room, how much you get your hands in the dough because your hands are hot. All that stuff is, is wildly different. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think the most important thing to people who are going to use this book to, to make pizza is follow the recipes exactly as you can when it comes to like measuring things out. But it's a living thing. It's always going to be different. So you have to watch it and you have to listen to it. And, you know, if the dough is growing, you need to lower the temperature. If nothing is happening, you need to either raise the temperature or just let it go longer. You know, I was working with a client in Manhattan and um, we didn't have heat yet in the building. And so you know, we mixed the doughs, we shaped them, and it was like, well, sh- you know, we're not putting these in the fridge. It's basically a fridge in this basement right now. It's just like in the s- s- low 60s, maybe 50s. And the next day, I came and looked at the doughs, and they were like looking pretty sleepy. They had not grown very much, but I was like, well, all right, let's make a pizza. And like, I checked about halfway through, and I was like, uh oh. I mean, it was it was just a terrible pizza. It looked terrible. The flavor was terrible. The structure of the crumb. Nothing good about it. It just, it was too cold and it hadn't had time to ferment. That very same dough, we just left out again overnight. And then the next day, 
we made pizza with it, and it was fantastic. What about some uh, styles of pizza you've worked with around the world that are shockingly different than what we're used to here? Um, I was never really like a pizza purist. You know, like I, I never ate pineapple on a pizza growing up. But when I was in Canada, they they wanted a pineapple pizza really bad. And I was like, okay, well, like, let me just let me think about, you know, why do people dislike pineapple on a pizza? You know, and, and it's mostly because they're using pizzerias are using like canned diced pineapple and sugar water. Mm-hmm. And then they're just putting it together with ham. So it's like very one note. The texture is wet and it's not really great. But, you know, everybody loves tacos al pastor. So mm-hmm. there's a great example of savory execution of pineapple that's delicious. So we roasted the pineapple whole and then pureed it and then dolloped it on with like a chili rubbed bacon and some mm-hmm. jalapeno and cilantro and diced onions and mozzarella and tomato sauce. And it was amazing. So I think if like one thing I've learned from traveling around the world is that if someone else enjoys something, there's got to be something there. I mean, because pizza, you know, may have been born in Italy, but it took the entire world to create pizza. You know, you have to have tomatoes from countless generations of indigenous people in Mesoamerica. And the water buffalo somehow came from India to Italy to make buffalo mozzarella. Basil also originally is from India. You know, wheat originating from the Middle East. The only thing Italian really about pizza is the olive oil. So pizza is the world's food. You know, the world gave it to us. Anthony, uh, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on Milk Street. It's great talking to you, Christopher. Thank you so much for having me. That was Anthony Falco. His book is Pizza Czar, Recipes and Know-How from a World-Traveling Pizza Chef. Now it's time for my co-host, Sarah Malt and I, to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101. She's also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. Sarah, so if we ever get out of this COVID time, what's the first food experience you're going to have outside of your home? Well, it would absolutely be a restaurant because it's, as you know, in a restaurant, it's not just the food, but it's the whole experience of being waited on and the ambiance of the restaurant. So, no, it would be a restaurant. Unfortunately, one of my favorite new restaurants, which was a couple blocks away from us, closed almost immediately, a Mm. place called Italien. We really love the chef. Oh, I, I, I've been there, yeah. There are all the neighborhood restaurants. And it's not even like they're the best restaurants on the planet. But, you know, it's the nostalgia of places right. you used to go. So there's a French bistro called Le Sange, the monkey. Love that one. There's a Greek restaurant called Periali that I would go to in a heartbeat, really miss it. I love Retsina, so I'd go have a glass of Retsina. And another Italian one called Etruli that I love very much, so... Those would yeah, be mine. I, I think I'm with you. I think after this is done, I think neighborhood restaurants are going to really resonate with people, right? Yeah. Much more so than maybe they did before. It's That's where I want to go. I want to go to a neighbor. I want to support my neighborhood. Right. But I also want to be in the neighborhood, right? Yes. The place you just walk to on a Saturday yeah. night. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, guys. This is Christy Ford from Union, South Carolina. Hi, Christy. How can we help you today? I have a question about baking. I'm by no means an experienced baker, but I love sweet potatoes. 
So I always bake them in batches, and I had some baked, and I tried a sweet potato bread. And so the way I made it, I just smashed the potatoes just with a fork. So they were a little bit chunky, and then I just used a quick bread recipe, put them in. And when I baked it, when the bread came out, it was beautiful, but when I cut into it, there were chunks of sweet potato in the bread, and they had turned green. (laughs) And... It didn't look beautiful, but it tasted wonderful. It was very good bread. I ate it. But I didn't wow. know if you guys knew why those chunks turned green and if there was something I could do to not have that happen. Wow. Uh, well, I think it has to do probably with some kind of oxidation. Sweet potatoes, they have color changes when they're exposed mm-hmm. to the air. Um, that's all I can guess. Uh, that has never happened to me, but uh, I'm... <laughs> I, but then again, no, to, I don't make a whole lot of sweet potato bread. Uh, Chris. We got to ask you a question. Wait a minute. We just have to ask the question. So you take it out of the <laughs> oven, you slice into yes. it, and they're big green chunks in the bread. Yes. And then you said it tasted delicious. Was there a moment in between <laughs> the visual and the eating where you said, maybe I shouldn't eat this? <laughs> Did that? Con- I'm going to be honest. I yeah. sniffed it first. And okay. It passed okay. the sniff test, so I just went okay. for it. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. You brave woman. Man, here. you're uh, after our own hearts. I agree with Sarah that it's the pH and it can mm-hmm. change color. But I don't understand why you said just the chunks turned green, but yes. the other stuff didn't. I guess maybe the other stuff, the pH was different in the batter than the chunks, but that's kind of curious. Yeah. I think. I thought maybe I should blend them next time and just yeah. not have chunks at all? Do you think that might be helpful? I think so. I think so, yeah. Okay. I think whatever okay. else yeah. was in the batter was balancing the pH. Right. I think that's right. Whereas the naked chunks right. were just doing their thing, you know? <laughs> and They're turning, just hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> turning green. <laughs> well, I'm glad it tasted good, though. Yay. You brave woman. It did. You. So if you learn nothing else, you learn that green sweet potatoes taste delicious, <laughs> and I would highly suggest it. Trust your nose. Yeah. yeah, trust your nose. Absolutely. If it Good for you. Test, I'm going for it. It's green, but it smells okay. Yes, yes that's right. Well, I really appreciate you guys taking my call. Right. Okay, Take thanks, care. Christy. Y'all have a good rest of your day. You Bye, too. Guys. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Tom Egan in Lambertville, New Jersey. Hi, Tom. How can we help you today? So my wife and I, um, we enjoy baking uh, yeast breads and uh, pizza dough, you know, making pizzas. We just moved to a new house a couple of months ago. We've noticed in the new house that any of our fermentations, they've been kind of underdeveloped. The big difference between the house we're in now and any place we've lived before is previously we were always on municipal water supply. In our current home, we're on a private well with a pretty hard water and a water softener, a sodium ion exchange water softener. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there's something about the well water or the softener that the sodium that's being added that could be impacting the yeast or the fermentation. Yeah, it can. Absolutely. Hard water is more alkaline than soft water, and it can definitely decrease the activity of the yeast. I don't know quite what you can do because that's the water you've got there. And I don't know what the alkalinity is of bottled water, but that might be something you would consider. Chris? Well, I think the well's haunted. Um, <laughs> I agree. I think, look, this is built over an old graveyard or something. And yeah. I agree with Sarah that hard water is going to decrease fermentation. It might 
tighten the gluten up a little bit. It's calcium and magnesium in the water that might make it harder for the flour to absorb water. And when flour and water mix, they create gluten. So one way around that is to two things. I would add more yeast, and you might start with a slightly wetter dough. I'd increase the percentage. I don't know what you're using now, you know, uh, 65% or 70% water, but you might increase that to 70 to 75%, you know, an extra 5% to make more water available. Well, first of all, we are three doors down from a cemetery, so I think your first See? theory might be on. Okay. Oh, my goodness. That was it. Dee, I knew dee, it. Dee, dee, I knew dee, it. Dee, dee. I knew it. <laughs> Chris, what do you think about using bottled water? Yeah, I would definitely use bottled water. Make sure it's you know it has an exorcism before you use it, of course, but I would, use, right. I would definitely use bottled water. When you say bottled, do you mean uh, bottled mineral water or distilled? Distilled. It sounds like the dough is underhydrated and it doesn't have enough yeast activity. Yeah. The other thing you could try is doing a poulish, which is start the night before, a cup of flour, a cup of water, half a teaspoon of yeast, let that sit out on the counter overnight, and then you go ahead with the rest of the recipe. So I think what I might try is making the poulish with my water-softened well water, and then maybe with the softener bypassed, and then also with distilled water, and try them all side by side and see what happens. The next day, when you do the overnight poulish, what does that mixture look like when you get up in the morning and look at it? Weekly bubbling. Like the first time we tried it, I actually thought maybe the yeast was old or bad. But then the second time we tried it, we tried it with a brand new jar of the Fleischmann oh. yeast, and it was the same result. So I'd say just switch the water. Yeah, I'd switch the water. But if you want to do that, that side by side, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Let us know. Yeah. I will report back and I'll say hi to the ghosts for you. You also better move while you're at it, because this is just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> no, you, you have no, no idea what's coming. No way I'm <laughs> moving again. I'd rather figure out how to get along with the okay, ghosts. Okay, well. Tell them who's in charge. <laughs> you give them some bread. Right. <laughs> Tom, it's a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thank you both. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you need help with a recipe or maybe sussing out a poltergeist, give us a ring. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855 855- Four two six nine eight four three, or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Elizabeth. I'm calling from Warwick, Rhode Island. How can we help you? Uh, my husband and I have a cast iron pan, and he's been working on getting it seasoned. It looks great. It's shiny. It looks like a skating rink almost. Mm-hmm. His litmus test for non-stickiness is to fry an egg on it. Mm-hmm. And the egg never seems to come clean. The other day, he also tried scrambled eggs on it, and it was a mess. So there are some foods that are not appropriate for using uh, cast iron. Do you have a non-stick pan in the house? We do. The quick answer would be for eggs, yes, you could use non-stick. I, I will say two things, though. I have an 8-inch carbon steel, which I love. I find they, if you season them properly, have a smoother surface. And I scramble eggs Mm -hmm. all the time in my carbon steel pan, and they do not stick. They come right out. Mm -hmm. So I think they're better for eggs than cast iron, which is a little dicey. The other thing is when he uses it, does he always do one seasoning after every use? Yes. Sounds like he knows exactly what he's doing. So – 
Yeah, I would say carbon steel is going to give you better results than cast iron. So in general, cast iron is you're probably better off with sautés and steaks and other things. Sarah? Yeah, I think carbon okay. steel was the original pan the French used for both omelets and crepes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I would agree with Chris. But I just wanted to ask you, you did add some oil or fat to the pan before you cooked the eggs, right? We did. And actually, that's another question we have for you. Is, is it better to add the oil before you heat the pan or heat the pan and then add oil? Well, I think Chris and I disagree on this one. I'm of the school, you heat the pan and then add the oil. No, don't do that. <laughs> I knew he no. would say that. <laughs> the reason we disagree is I think by putting the oil into the cold pan, you can tell when the pan's at the right temperature by looking at the oil. It'll start to ripple and then have a wisp of smoke. All I was going to say is that if you heat it and keep an eye on it and then add the oil, I find that it gives a better seal to the pan and makes the pan more nonstick. So. Oh, okay. But I still agree with Chris. I think you want to get carbon steel for your eggs. We haven't okay. asked one question, which is how much, if I'm doing, let's say, two scrambled eggs, two eggs, I will add mm-hmm. two tablespoons of oil, olive oil, to the pan, an eight-inch pan. Sometimes, I think Sarah was onto this, you don't add enough oil to the pan. So if I'm cooking in cast iron or carbon steel, I will use extra oil because that'll coat the surface of the pan between the food and the metal. So when Mm -hmm. you have insufficient oil, that can be a problem. And most of that oil doesn't get absorbed by the food anyway. It just sits in the pan. So make sure you use a little extra Mm -hmm. as well. But I think we're agreed. Carbon steel is probably the way to go. I agree. Elizabeth, thank you. Thank you for calling. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, it's Sarit Packer and Itamar Srulovich on Cooking with Fire. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. 
Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like, um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Year Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Sarit Packer and Itamar Srulovich, they're the husband and wife team behind the London restaurants, Honey & Co., Honey & Smoke, and also Honey & Spice. For their latest book, Chasing Smoke, they traveled around the Levant to learn the secrets of Middle Eastern grilling. Sarit and Itamar, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, let's start at the very beginning. Sarit, you grew up in northern Israel. Was that in the, in the Galilee Valley, or, or where exactly did you grow up? Well, just outside of Haifa and kind of more, I suppose, a provincial part of it. So exactly halfway between Haifa and the Galilee, um, just kind of by the sea, five minutes from the sea. And was that food, uh, just describe the food a little bit, it was sort of a combination of Arab cuisine? And- yeah, so I, I think my life was quite mixed because I actually grew up in an English family. My parents are both from England and they moved there before I was born. So we had this weird mix where at home we would eat very English food, but whenever we went out and went up to the Galilee or to any of our extended family on kibbutzim in the Galilee and stuff like that, we would eat the local, mostly Arab food in the villages, you know, all the kind of salads and the grills and all of this stuff, and then come home and eat very English fare of like, uh, (laughs) you know, chicken pies and, 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 you know, it was quite a mix. 
So what was that like between the wonderful local cuisine and then going back to you know, chicken pies. Did you, <laughs> well, did, did you notice the difference at all? Or no? I mean, th- there is a difference. I mean, thankfully, my mom is, she is an excellent cook. And She's I think, a fantastic cook, yeah. you know, really, even for, for the kind of English fare that you would think is quite horrible. She's a queen of seasoning and stuff like that. So we never ate horrible food at home. But I definitely remember this aspect of friends coming over and sniffing a jar of Marmite and being like, what are you eating? This is horrible. <laughs> but, but for me, like, there's as much charm in Marmite as there is in hummus. But I definitely had the excitement of these flavors and going out and the freshness of of the food. That's a good, maybe your next cookbook should be Marmite and Hummus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is, you know, there is one in a supermarket here, Marmite Hummus now. It's like a new uh, thing. But also it was a mix of like this new Israeli cuisine sometimes because on the kibbutzim, you would have like shared dining rooms and that would be this kind of mishmash of foods that would come from diaspora of Jews eating all kinds of things. So you would have like a Moroccan chicken next to Ashkenazi like chicken soup. It was a real mishmash of eating. Um, Itamar, you grew up in Jerusalem. Yes, the city on the hill. Yeah, this is where I'm from, which was again, it's like Sarit said, you are exposed to so many different uh, traditions and cuisines in that, you know, you would have in the same building a family from Morocco and a family from Iran or from wherever, and just that carrying their traditions with them. You know, we we had a lovely Bulgarian neighbor who would cook for us, and we loved her food so much. So you do have access to a lot of these very, very traditional cuisine in their Israeli slant. But my house, kind of my background, was uh, Yemeni and Egyptian. And this is the food that we had on, on my mother's table, on my grandmother's table, and of course, the food of, you know, Jerusalem, which is east and west and, and everything in between. Could you give us a really short course, especially in Yemeni cuisine? I know there are Yemeni bakeries in Tel Aviv. It's part of that. But could you just describe briefly what, you know, to, to someone who knows nothing about it, what it's like? Well, uh, Yemeni cuisine is very, very economical cuisine. The flavor would come from spice mixes a lot as opposed to, you know, meat or cheese or something like that. So we eat a lot of uh, soups and stews that are beautifully seasoned and spiced. We have a lot of pastry, a lot of bread. In our baking, we use a lot of uh, samne, a lot of uh, clarified butter. And that's kind of, you know, the richness, the flavor would come from that. And we would eat everything with khilbe, uh, which is a fenugreek paste and shog, which is a coriander paste. So the flavoring is very high, but, you know, it's not a rich cuisine, if you know what I mean. So you both passed through the Ottolenghi Empire, and now you have three restaurants in London, Honey & Co., etc. Do you want to just give me a thumbnail sketch of what Honey & Co. is all about? Yeah, I think, well, we opened almost 10 years ago, Honey & Co., and this was after we had managed quite a few kitchens and like you say we we went through Ottolenghi and we managed I managed the pastry Tamar managed a couple of the different shops and we wanted to go back a bit and do something a bit more personal and and kind of the two of us and homey food so we found this little shop and it was so cute and we just said we're just going to try and cook the food we eat at home and keep it quite casual like the plating isn't fancy it's not fine dining the portions are decent sizes and we just wanted it to be a fun picture of this cuisine and 
And that's where it started. We didn't really have more of a plan in our heads, if that makes sense. Yeah, we just wanted to work, you know, without bosses, really. <laughs> yeah, we thought it would be so fun. They're just the two of us in the kitchen. And it kind of grew into slightly a monster, Honey and & Co. And we, <laughs> a year in, ended up with a book deal and and we were kind of bursting at the seams in this tiny little place and we were turning away more people than we were actually, actually seating. Yeah. And that felt really bad. The whole point was to feed people. <laughs> um, let's talk about your book, Chasing Smoke. So yeah. most people in the States think about barbecue or grilling in very American terms, which is big pieces of meat, right? Yeah. Your book is so different. Um, yeah. in, in fact, the whole notion of grilling it's just an entirely different concept than how we would imagine it here. So could you just talk about fundamentally how grilling works in the Levant, I mean, around the Mediterranean? What's the basic concept? Because it's very different than here. It is very different. And I think, first of all, you have to come from this place of understanding that it's about an every day, every meal, every occurrence, and 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 kind of really casual. It's not about this big process of getting a whole animal and spitting it up and kind of <laughs> turning it really slowly or, or, you know, putting it in a massive smoker. This is about day-to-day, -day, like, making kebabs, making koftas, just putting your corn on, you know. You want to eat some corn, you put it on a barbecue and you grill it and you, you grill mushrooms and aubergines and everything, you know. It's just a way of cooking rather than... A special occasion. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Sarit from her background and me from mine, we love those grilling traditions of the Middle East, you know, the, the roasting lamb and aubergines and the tomatoes. This is the food that we really, really love. And so it was a real indulgence for us to do this book, just like it was an indulgence for us to do the restaurant, Honey and Smoke, because this is the food that we want to cook. This is what we want to eat. And just going to the source of that impulse, let's say, and going to see it on the ground in Turkey, in, in Egypt, in Jordan, and see what people of the region are doing on their barbecues was just incredible for us. And, you know, if we can bring a smidgen of this back to the West, then, wow, what a thing to do. Let's talk about equipment. Um, you, in some of the pictures in the book, use that classic rectangular grill on legs. It's used in Mexico. It's used yeah. all over the Mediterranean. Could you just describe basic equipment? Uh, are you using wood? Are you using charcoal? What kind of grill do you use, etc.? We use a very basic set of equipment. Actually, we don't even... Equipment is not even that necessary. Basically, you need a place where you can put either wood or charcoal. We do tend to, to actually grill food on charcoal, smoke it on wood, uh, rather than do the full cooking on wood. And usually you need like a good grid, I think, or what do you how would you call it in America? Grill grate. Yeah. Yeah, to, to sit on top of it. But that could be like in a in a fire pit in the ground or in just a regular square rectangle metal thing. A couple of air holes because you've got to get some air circulation going. But other than that, I mean, on this trip, we cooked in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> you know, we, we, we cooked we, in an abandoned sink. We cooked yeah. in a barrel. We cooked yeah. in a pit in the desert. In, uh, by the uh, beach cooked, and the sand, yeah. you know, just anywhere. Really, the idea is that if you can start a fire somewhere and you've got like a bag of charcoal or wood, then then you're good, you know. Yeah. All you need is, is the simplest kind of metal square 
and a little bit of charcoal and you can do magnificent things with it. Really, really delicious food. Do you think it's important to be able to vary the distance between the grill grate and the fire? Or do you just adjust the fire? You just adjust the fire. I mean, if you can, if you have one of these that adjusts, amazing. Like, use it, definitely. But we've kind of detached ourselves from what cooking used to be, which is adjusting and moving and learning and smelling. And, you know, the sight of things as they cook, they change. And it's just getting into the rhythm of it. And actually, when you eat a meal that you've cooked this way, you have this sense of pride that's happening with it as well and excitement because... It's not about pressing one button that's done all the calculation for you on how you get that chicken out of the oven perfectly roasted. Or, you know, we cook whole cabbages on the grill and they are delicious. You know, they're the, yeah, I saw that, yeah. the flavor that comes out of this thing and you think, oh, my God, it's just a cabbage. What's And then you eat it and you are like, oh, my God, I had never realized something could have so much flavor with so little intervention. You did something else here in the book. Walk, cook, tomatoes. And onions. In fact, you you grill tomatoes quite a lot mm. for salads and things. Yeah. That's not something mm. that um, we think about doing here. Could you just talk about that? So I think pretty much everywhere in the Middle East, if you go to any kebab shop, you will either get a skewer of tomatoes and onions, or if you'd order a meat skewer, there would be tomatoes and onions laced through it. And this is kind of like, almost like a vegetable side, but also a salad can't quite explain it, but very often it is the best bit. You know, it is because you would, you know, maybe you take your meat off the skewer, you have your pita bread, you take the charred tomato, smush it on the bread, get your meat inside. If you have some tahina, you, you eat it with that. You know, vegetables on the grill are just something really, really special happen on really, really high heat. Well, you're also grilling peaches, you're grilling watermelon. I mean, let's talk about yeah. fruits. Yeah. Fruits, yeah. Uh, yeah. Pears, you know, everything. Like, there's all these things. I think what we really wanted to showcase is that it's not just about taking a piece of meat and, and putting it on fire. So it's not, you know, man, meat, fire thing. It's more mm. about mm. Uh, intensifying flavors. So figs, figs on the fire are divine you know it just brings out the kind of honey sweetness of it but also it's adding that extra element that the smoky the the char it just lifts everything and i think we do use a lot of fruit in our salads and especially try to really take pride in something that's coming into season so you know we get excited by peach season by fig season and by watermelons and grilling watermelons oh my god it's it's a revelation one of the best things you can do it's amazing um, Southern Turkey, I mean, people here don't think much about Turkey being such a, a varied place in terms of the food and the landscape. You said Southern Turkey was just amazing. Oh, my I God. Mean, I mean, it should all, it should be the biggest yeah. tourist destination of the world. Like, yeah. it's beautiful. So, yeah, we were Southern Turkey kind of, um, I suppose, not that far from the border with Syria. Uh, northern Syria. Beautiful, mountainous super super fertile land you know there's just massive growth everywhere so these rolling hills you feel like the 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 earth is just like exploding with produce like even on traffic islands and by the side of the road you'd see these citrus trees like grapefruit trees with massive fruit just almost Mm. dripping down with goodness yeah i mean turkey is it's a huge country and so varied and it's a country with a you know very proud food tradition like on a par with the great food traditions of the world you know with french food and and japanese food 
And where we've been in, in southern Turkey, in Gaziantep and Adana, you cannot describe the, the fruit, the vegetables, everything. It's just... The pistachios. You know, they yeah. have like 200 grades of pistachios. <laughs> and the stuff <laughs> that we eat in the UK and think, ooh, these are nice pistachios, they wouldn't even Donkey consider... Feet. Yeah, yeah, they wouldn't consider right. cooking with them because they are too, they're like a grade that is just for export. They would not bother eating them. Yeah. We were lucky also to be there uh, during Ramadan, which is just an explosion of excitement because come nightfall, these restaurants come to life in, you've never seen anything like it. I mean, these grills, first of all, they're like a mile long. Yeah. But they are, a whole side of a restaurant is a grill, like a massive grill. It's blazing with this glorious fire and everyone wants to eat at once because they've been fasting all day and there's like hundreds of skewers going on. It's, um, it's yeah, really amazing. Magical, magical. You mentioned uh, this three-legged cast iron pot from Africa. A poike. Poike. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you said it's now getting very popular in Israel. Could you explain it? Because that's something that we don't ever do here. Have you not got poikas? Have they not come? I think it's, it no. might be the, the next big craze in America because basically it's it's like a, I suppose, like a Dutch oven on legs. If right. you, it looks if like you, a witch's cauldron. Yeah, it does, mm. doesn't it? I never thought yeah. about that. Like a witch's cauldron. Three a very really, small witch. Yeah, a small yeah. witch and a small Tiny cauldron. Tiny witch, yeah. But three very thin, uh, spiky legs, big bulbous pot on top from cast iron, really heavy, and you put that on a fire pit. And it's a, a really great way to slow cook things in their own juices. So you're adding very little water, really. Uh, but it just traps everything in there. And the flavors are just so intense. You, you did a lot of traveling for this book, yeah. uh, Chasing Smoke. Was this a, a pilgrimage of sorts? It was a pilgrimage in sorts. You know, we have these memories of, of childhood where you've done a day trip and you're, you know, you're hungry and it's the end and you look for this whiff of smoke because you know that... Behind that whiff of smoke is something delicious. So that was kind of in our minds. It's like, let's look for that whiff of smoke because there's always something good at the end of that. For me, it's it's going to sound super cheesy, but, you know, you need to end with a little bit of cheese, don't you? <laughs> but we, we were traipsing around the region and we were very brazen in how we went into people's kitchens and how we tried everything and how we kind of you know, we, we would go to a restaurant and go straight in the kitchen. I mean, we don't do it in our normal everyday life. Um, and we wouldn't be very sympathetic if someone did it in our restaurant. But I can't tell you of one occasion that we were met with anything but complete and utter hospitality, hmm. generosity, friendliness. When you were curious about someone's food, they don't hold back. They want to share. You know, they feel right. respected and, and they give you so much. And I, I think it's, it's a really kind of life-affirming experience for me. Sarit, Itamar, thank you so much uh, for being on Milk Street. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. The pleasure was all ours. It's been a pleasure for us. Thank you so much for having us. That was Sarit Packer and Itamar Srulovich. Their book is Chasing Smoke, Cooking Over Fire Around the Levant. Most of us fire up the grill in the backyard to cook meat, but other people in the world think of grilling as an opportunity to cook virtually everything, from eggs to eggplant and sweet potatoes to peaches, from watermelon to lettuce. And instead of using $500 grills, 
Cooks around the world turn to holes in the ground or maybe even wheelbarrows. So it's a pretty good reminder that you don't need stuff to cook, you just need fire. This is Mill Street Radio. We've just chatted with Sreed Packer and Itamar Srulovich from London's Honey & Co. And now we're going into the kitchen with Lynn Clark to make one of my favorite recipes from their restaurant, almond coconut cake with cherries and pistachios. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I like fruitcakes. I'm not ashamed to admit this on public radio, but a lot of people are not fans. But they're fruitcakes and they're fruitcakes. So maybe we could talk about a very different take on fruitcakes that I think people would actually love. Well, this take on fruitcake is from Honey & Co. It's an almond coconut cake with cherries and pistachios. It uses fresh fruit, which is a little bit different than a typical fruitcake, to make a really pretty cake, but also kind of rustic with a lot of complex flavor. So this isn't something that you let sit, you know, you make it in October and eat it at Christmas. This is a one-layer cake you can eat right away, right? Absolutely. It comes together so quickly. It's a really simple mixing method. You're just mixing wet and dry ingredients together. There's coconut in with the dry ingredients. In with the wet ingredients are two types of sugar, almond extract. They use something called maleb, which comes from the seed of a cherry, has that sort of bitter almond flavor. Um, So we're using almond extract in our version. And In the cake, there's also almond flour, not just all-purpose flour. So it makes a really moist and tender cake, and then it gets topped with that fruit. So really nice balance between the sweetness from the cake and the nuttiness from the almond flour and the almond extract. You see almond flour popping up quite a lot in baking and rye flour, too, because I think it adds... All-purpose flour just doesn't have a lot of taste. It doesn't have a lot of taste, and it also adds a lot more moisture, especially a nut flour. So it makes the cake stay really nice and moist, even for a couple of days after you make it. So it's a one- or two-bowl cake. You don't have to use a standing mixer, right? No, definitely not. Just whisk everything together. Once you put it in the cake pan, you just tear the cherries right on top of the cake and put them on Mm. top. All the juice from the cherries, as you kind of tear them apart, soaks into the top of the cake too then top it with some roasted unsalted pistachios mm-hmm. bakes for about 50 minutes at 350 and then you can actually turn the cake out you wouldn't think you could do that with all that delicious stuff on top but it gets so mm. nicely embedded into the cake you turn it mm. out let it cool slice it up it's so nice and moist i like the tearing the cherries part it's fun that just sounds like something i would really enjoy So almond coconut cake with cherries and pistachios from Honey & Co. in London. Even if you don't love fruitcake, you're going to love this cake. Thanks, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for almond coconut cake with cherries and pistachios at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett tell us why we can have our cake and eat it, too. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping, 
as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Lauren Thomas, and here's my tip. Last weekend, I happened to be listening to Milk Street, and I heard someone ask what to do about banana peels. And in the course of conversation, they suggested trying banana bacon. Having decided not to eat bacon, I tried it. It was really amazing. It's good, it's light, and it tastes like bacon. Scrape the banana peel of all the white stuff, marinate it in soy sauce and smoky paprika. I left it sit for overnight actually and then fry it and it was really a delicious way of using my organic banana peels thank you if you'd like to share your own cooking tip or suggestion on milk street radio please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips next up it's grant baird and martha barnett hosts of away with words grant martha how are you we're great. Fantastic. How are you? I'm good. I'm always in a quandary about words, and that's why you guys are here. That's what yeah, we're here for. Yeah, food words. We're here for lunch and to tell you a little bit about words and language, <laughs> which go hand in hand. Uh, the first thing on our mind is the proof is in the pudding, and this is the idea that you can't know a good thing until you try it. It's kind of a confusing phrase, but it's not so confusing if you know the history of the phrase. The longer form of this phrase is the proof of the pudding is in the tasting, or later the oh. proof of the pudding is in the eating. And when we talk about pudding here, we're not talking about the custard-like dessert uh, that we enjoy on this side of the pond. We're talking about a kind of sausage, and proof here in this uh, expression means test, not evidence. And so the the idea is you can't know how good or bad a thing is until you try it. 
I mean, everything was a pudding at one point, right? They used to boil things in intestines yes, and stomachs. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of pudding we're talking about, intestines right. stuffed with ground right. meat and spices and leftovers of other meals and things like mm-hmm. that. And this goes back to, the idea goes back to about the 1300s, but this form of the expression dates from about the 1600s. And uh, there are parallels in other languages, too. Uh, Don Quixote, for example. Yeah, in Don Quixote, there's the phrase, al freir de los huevos lo verá, which means means you'll see when the eggs are fried. Oh, that's so poetic. Isn't it? I think it's lovely. <laughs> you know, don't judge an egg before it's fried. And in Italian, you might test the cake. You might try the cake or the torta. And right. that leads us to the other expression we've been thinking about today, which is to have your cake and eat it too. Yes, which is also one of those confusing phrases that's kind of fossilized in the language, but again, makes more sense if you know its history. I mean, a lot of people wonder why it's not you can't eat your cake and have it too. And it's, you know, I mean, if you think about it, you can have your cake and eat it. You can have it for a while and then you can eat it. No, but this makes, now wait a minute, this expression (laughs) makes no sense. Like, who's going to have a birthday cake and and have it sit around for three weeks and not eat it? Miss Havoc. Havisham, maybe? Oh, no, Miss that was Havisham. a wedding cake. Yeah, well, that, that was, you know, yeah, I, I'm not going to sit around with a wedding dress in a dark room. But, you know, if you have a cake, you eat the cake. So I don't, I don't get it. But. Well, there's two different things to take away from this expression. One is that you can't have something both ways. But also, yeah. things that we appreciate should sometimes be used and enjoyed. So, and this goes not just for cake, but for money or nice clothes. Or have you ever bought a new car and then didn't want to drive it because you were afraid of that first ding that it would get? This kind of applies to all of those things. Well, it's, I guess it's, fish and cut bait to have a, a, a bad analogy. But, I mean, you, you got to do one or the other. So like, let's just eat the cake and not worry about having it. There we go. Right. Eat dessert first, Yeah, right? just eat the cake. Just, <laughs> we'll, yeah. We'll simplify it. And there's a British expression that's similar. It's an old one. Uh, they want their cake and their haypenny too, meaning they want the treat, uh, but they also want to keep their money. And you might say that of a miser, somebody who's a penny pitcher. Yeah, and we could be talking about all kinds of expressions like this all day long. We, we could go from soup to nuts, couldn't we, Grant? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And Chris, what do you <laughs> think of when we say soup to nuts? Do you think well, of a hardware store? Since I was born in the Victorian age, at least emotionally, <laughs> I, I, it's about it's about those twelve course meals where you start with soup and you end up after That's with right. fruit and nuts there at the end go. of the meal, right? Okay. Yeah. That's right. But a lot of people think of hardware stores. I think various hardware chains have used slogans like that over the years. They think of those kind of places that sell everything, dry goods and car parts and tools and wedding dresses and snow tires and everything. Well, wait, wait. Did, are there hardware stores in your neighborhood, Grant, that sell car parts and wedding dresses? <laughs> I was being hyperbolic. I'd like to go to that store. (laughs) And, you know, there was a similar idea in ancient Rome. There was the expression ab ovo usque ad mala, which means from the egg to the apple. And that reflects the kind of fancy Roman meal you'd have with eggs at the beginning and uh, an apple at the end to finish it off. And sometimes if people are speaking fancy English, they might just say ab ovo alone, meaning from the egg or from the Mm -hmm. start. So you'll find it sprinkled in text where somebody is trying to impress you with their learnedness. That doesn't have to come from the Roman feast when the egg is the beginning, right, of life. Oh, no, of course not. I think it's the chicken. Yes, the chicken or the egg or something, (laughs) whatever. Soup to nuts, of course, shouldn't be confused with the slang term soup and fish. Do you put on your soup and fish when you go to a fancy dinner, Chris? You know, I... I think of myself as fairly well-read, 
but I've never heard that. What does that mean? It refers to men's formal evening wear, and huh. you, you don't hear that that much, but uh, that, like that expression that. is still floating around. Yeah, you'll find it in uh, historical novels or period movies, that sort of thing. Um, interestingly, Soup to Nuts dates to about the mid-1800s in British newspapers talking about how fast Americans eat. They talk about an American who could run through a multi-course meal in 10 minutes. They, they killed Soup to Nuts in 10 minutes. <laughs> we were known to be uncultured eaters even then. We would not sit down and have the three-hour meal like the Europeans and the British would. Well, this reminds me of Bertie Wooster, right? In, in yes, Jews and Worcester. Worcester. Absolutely, absolutely. He always used to say he was going to go out to dinner and put on the old feed bag, which I yes. thought was, was just a great expression, right? I would not be surprised if Soup and Fish is in, in the, the Bertie Wooster novels. Yeah. It must be. Grand Martha, thank you. From Soup to Nuts, it's been great. Thanks, Thanks Chris. Thanks for having us. <laughs> that was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our TV show, or order our latest cookbook, which is Tuesday Night's Mediterranean. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. Intern, Emily Kunkel. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.